it's your boy. Welcome to episode 8 of the podcast. This is M, the hateful 8th episode. Your boy played with Matt Nathanson last night at Wente Vineyards. Wente, Wente Vineyards in Livermore, California. Always a pleasure playing with him. Um, You know, I was listening back to some other episodes and I realized I probably mentioned Matt Nathanson like in every single episode so far. And um, I'm surprised it actually never came up when I was on tour with him, but I had about 10 people ask me last night after my performance how I um, met Matt. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. And uh, I don't know if there are any takeaways for other people, even if you're not playing music. I think there's um, there's probably something in here for you. Um, but uh, to start off... Um, uh, this is the eighth episode episode of the podcast. This is M. Uh, if you want to connect with me online, you can at this is M XOXO. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. And um, yeah, if you like the show, if you've been listening and you want to share it with uh, someone else, please do. Just think of one person in your life who you think would like the show um, and share your favorite episode so far with them. Um, believe it or not, this is episode eight and episode four actually just came out today. So, um, you will be listening to this, um, a month. Anything I talk about today is going to have happened a month in the past by the time you listen to this. Um, like I said, I'm having a lot of fun recording these. I would be releasing them twice a month or, uh, twice a week if I could. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, well, I guess I could ostensibly if I wanted to, but, um, I don't know. I feel like we got to grow this thing before uh, before I do that. Or maybe that's not. Maybe maybe I should just be releasing like five a week or something like that. It's hard to really know sometimes. Um, you know, I think the old way of thinking is that you want everything to be great. You want to do the best that you can. And so, you know, if it means putting out one record every six years, as long as it's a masterpiece and it's the best work you can do, that's what it should be. And I think times have changed. I know I brought up. Jack Conti on, um, I don't know, one of the previous episodes. I think it was the last one, though. The last one to you. Um, excuse me. Um, he actually told me something interesting one time. Um, he said that he publishes at 80%. And uh, he was very evangelical about that idea, which is, I don't know if it was from his own experience or something that, I, I mean, he's just been in touch I mean, not even just as the founder of Patreon, but in general, he's been in touch with so many creators. Um, Maybe this was a common problem he observed, but people were procrastinating on releasing, or it took them forever to put things out, or they hemmed and they hawed and, you know, were polishing... What's the the expression? Polishing shit? Oh, polishing a turd? (laughs) Um, But his whole thing was like, release at 80%. And... um, I don't know if I would necessarily prescribe that for everybody, but I think for me that idea has been pretty influential because I am the type of person who hems and who haws and um, who wants everything to be great. And it's not that... I think what I've learned over the years is when you do that, that's fine. And sometimes you feel like it's helping you create um, the work that you're very proud of. Excuse me. Dude, Fuck. So I don't know what it is about this podcast that makes me yawn, but I do. Um, Every time I release another episode, someone 
you know, my buddy Matt texted me today and was like, dude, Yawnfest on the, on the podcast today. I, do, I don't know what it is, but it's just, uh, it's part of the zeitgeist and it's something that we do here. And, uh, dude, if you don't like that, then maybe this podcast isn't for you. And I'm going to yawn at you while I say that. <sighs> dude, deal with it. Um, yeah, what was I talking about? Oh, Jack Conti. And, uh, yeah, this idea of publishing at 80%. So, you know, there's a part of me that wants everything to be perfect. But um, there's also this idea that I think about sometimes, which is, I think... I think when people stumble on something that they like, and it could be a podcast, it could be a YouTube channel, it could be a band. And it, I mean, the easiest example is a television show. When people stumble on a television show that they like, they're going to be super bummed if the only thing that's available is the pilot episode or the first three or four seasons or the first three or four episodes. Dude, fucking deal with it. <laughs> they're going to be bummed if the only thing available is um, a few episodes. Because when people find something they like, they will give their fucking life to it. They will give a week of work to it. They will stay in for, you know, 72 hours at a time and will binge watch a show. They'll watch an entire season of Game of Thrones in a long weekend. And so there's a part of me that's like, oh, I want to take my time. I want to release things once a month. I want everything to be good. But then there's a part of me that's like, look, people are going to casually check this out. Um, and if they happen to stumble on something, you know, great, fine. But your real audience is going to be people who are going to be people who just dig the vibe that you're putting out or they dig you or whatever it is that people, um, latch onto in podcasts. For me, it's personality. Um, my brother shared this podcast with me recently called the thing about Pam. And I think everybody's listening to this thing. So, um, I mean, I'm not entirely, uh, I'm not really hip to what the kids are listening to these days. So, um, so, uh, so I don't know how popular this thing is. Oh, deal with it. But, um, but, um, I was listening to it and I, well, first of all, if you have checked out the podcast, the thing about Pam, it, of course, it's a true crime podcast cause that's what everybody's doing now. Um, and it tells a story about this guy who was may or may not have been framed for murder and the person who may or may or not, may or may have not gotten away with it, etc. Um, you can kind of see where that goes, but there's something about the narrator and everybody's kind of making fun of this dude. His voice is ridiculous and he talks like this. The thing about Pam is blah, blah, blah. And, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I was trying to describe it to my brother and I said, it's kind of irreverent, isn't it? Like, the dude's talking about people who died, and he's, oh, deal with it. Deal with it. He kind of has this, like, puckish tone to his voice, and I don't know, irreverent was the word that just kept coming back to me as I was listening. But the point is, as I was listening to this, I was going to say professionally produced podcast. I think it's from Dateline NBC, actually. But even as I was listening, I heard a lot of weird editing errors and weird things that I think kind of went unnoticed um, listening to it with headphones. But I digress. The real point is, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, you know, this is entertaining enough um, that I will I will listen to these six half-hour-long episodes. And I think I was talking about this on the last episode, but there was nothing in it like what 
the Chris D'Elia podcast has been for me uh, over the last few months, few months, which is I was all in after like one or two episodes of the Chris D'Elia podcast. And um, mostly it's like on YouTube. Even if I don't have the video up, you know, I'll usually play it from YouTube. I don't think I've listened to a full episode. Um, deal with it. <sighs> just audio wise. I don't think I've listened to a full Chris D'Elia podcast episode. Uh, with just audio. It's always been YouTube, even if it's just playing in the background. But like with Chris D'Elia, it's like I'm totally in for him. And I, I think I've described it this way before, which is the podcasts I really like. It's like finding a new friend. And um, I was over the moon that there was like 140 episodes of the Chris D'Elia podcast for me to just sort of swim in. And this is actually my whole point, which I've been sort of dancing around here. But um the point is when people find something that they like, they want to, they need a world, they need something to sink into I, or they want something to sink into. And even though you may have a couple of people who like what they're hearing um, and sort of stick around for the journey, deal with it, dude, this is going to be an episode. Oh, this is unbelievable. This is going to be an episode. I think I probably, my yawn count is probably higher in the first 10 minutes of this episode than in any episode um, prior. So this is going to be one for the fucking record books. But um, uh, someone should start keeping stats on this. Um, like, I'm so stupid when I try to talk about sports, but like, what do you, I guess batting average? I was going to say, what do batters have? But it's their batting average, probably. You should say what my yawn average is per episode. And dude, I already feel another one coming on. Oh my God. Sheesh. Oh, dude. Wow, dude. It's like I'm cursed. Dude, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. As soon as I jump on this mic, dude, it's like something just hits me. Anyway, um, yeah, I have more thoughts about it, but I really don't want to get mired in that. Um, yeah, I think I was just saying when you stumble on something you like, you want to sink into it. So there's a part of me that's like, fuck it if no one listens. I just want to release maybe even two, three episodes a week. Um, because when my people, you know, when my people stumble on the podcast, they're going to, they're going to want something to sink into. I would love to have a hundred episodes waiting for people. But then again, yeah, you knew it. <sighs> then again, if it's just a bunch of crap, I don't know. So I waffle. If it was up to me, I would probably release at least two episodes a week. But, uh, yeah, there's still a part of me that feels like I need to grow this thing before I do that. Um, yeah, dude. And so, yeah, I'm really kind of dancing around today. Um, did I finish what I was saying about Jack Conti? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. His whole thing was like publishing at 80%. So when something's 80% done, put it out there. And I think maybe it goes back to, you know what? He did tell me this story, um, you know, he has, he had a video that he put out like years ago and it was this very elaborate music video that had to do with like robots or something. And he said he spent an entire month and maybe even thousands of dollars building this like spaceship type interior in this shed in he and Natalie's like backyard. And he spent just untold amount of hours, you know, just you know, over a hundred hours, like building and shooting and editing this thing. And he put it out, and I think it got like a million views or whatever, but it earned him like $100 in ad revenue or something. And he was so unbelievably disappointed um, by that. And I think it was because 
I think there was there was two things. One, he was disappointed at what the return on that kind of um, creative, um, financial, and um, just time investment in that kind of project, but to get so little in return in terms of being compensated for all of that, um, that he kind of had a shift in perspective about you know how he could feasibly spend his time moving forward, which is things had to, I mean to continue things had to be much simpler. But at the same time, I think there was a creative payoff, which is he had a vision and he executed it and he did exactly what it took to take this idea that he had in his brain and make it real. Um, And so that was very satisfying. But moving forward, I think he said practically, you know, I'm going to have to be more realistic about how much time I can invest in a video if this is the return that it's going to be. And I think he decided moving forward that the best way um, to circumnavigate all that is to publish at 80%. Do the best you can, and when it's at 80%, just put it out there, because it's time to work on the next thing. And um, this is something I encounter, and it's really, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's counterintuitive, but it's not something I was able to really integrate until, you know, you're creating and releasing stuff on a consistent basis. I was talking on another episode about you can't decide what you're known for. You can't decide what your um, most successful song is going to be. You are going to be recording something and you're going to be poised to release something that you think will be celebrated, that you think people will love, and it will be ignored. And other times you're going to release something you don't care about, and you might even be slightly embarrassed to release it, release it because you think it falls short of your you know, the high creative standards you've set for yourself, and that will be the most successful thing you ever do. Um, I, I mean, I can't say universally, but I think almost without exception, um, that is the case for every creative person. And um, so if you're a creative person and you're sitting on a project, just put it out because, you know, it, you know, even when you're a year away from something that you create, if you're doing it consistently, you already feel like you're better, you know? So don't invest so much hope. Maybe that's it. <clears throat> yeah, dude, I don't know. My mind's kind of spinning here, but maybe, I don't know if the takeaway is to not invest as much time in things. I mean, you certainly want to do the best that you can do, but don't invest so much hope in any one creative project. Do the best you can, do justice to the thing in front of you, and then move on and trust that you are a creative factory <laughs> um, and not a warehouse. You're not storing things. You are, you're a production line. And that this was very important right now, and for whatever reason, the cosmos sort of gifted it to you to, and, and willed it and, and, and you know, used you as a sort of conduit to create it, and then you have to sort of send it off, give it to the world, and then be ready to receive the next thing. Um... Anyway, I'm, I, what, I'm, what I'm struggling to do right now is find a fitting end uh, to this topic so I can probably move into my... Um, I, I started talking about the Matt Nathanson show and, and got away from it very quickly. Um, and I don't know that it's the case, but maybe one point of contact between the two is uh, when I did the Matt Nathanson tour and we did like eight shows, or maybe it was like nine shows in eight cities or something like that along the West Coast. Every single show ended with his most famous song, which is Come On, Get Higher. And it's a phenomenal song. Um, um, and it's almost certainly the, the song that Matt Nathanson is most well-known for. That's why he ends his shows with it. And I've never had a conversation with Matt about it. I don't know how he feels about it, but I would be very surprised if he thought it was his best song, just knowing what I know about creative people. 
um i mean matt's a smart guy and he's not uh like you know it's sort of funny like when you see actors who were sort of famous for something you know in the early part of their career and they're sort of embarrassed and they look at it as a blemish in their adulthood like they feel like that role kept them from doing what they were supposed to do you know like they were sort of cheated out of a legitimate creative career because you know, they have to be, look, I'm thinking of Zach Morris from Stay by the Bell. And I'm not saying that this actor feels that way. I'm just saying it's the type of thing that you might expect an actor like that to be jaded about, which is everywhere I go, people see me as Zach Morris. And so I can't play King Lear or uh, Hamlet the way I want to, because people just think I'm Zach Morris. Sort of, it's almost like the Keanu Reeves thing, right? Like he's, uh, I don't know if he's Bill or Ted in the whole Bill and Ted thing, but um, he's one of those dudes. So every role that Keanu Reeves does, people voice him as if he's some sort of Hesher. You know, I'm Keanu Reeves, man. I'm in the Matrix. I'm like totally like the one, dude. And the truth is, he really sounds nothing like that. But that's, uh, that's the lens that people see him through. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a common thing I feel with actors uh, when they're known for like one role. People just see them. Like um, James Gandolfini from the Sopranos. He's always going to be Tony Soprano. Not I mean he's dead now. But you know if he you know he was going to be hard to it was it would be difficult to cast him as anything else. And even if he did, people would say, "Oh, that's Tony Soprano playing you know, I don't know what he would have played." But um uh yeah, I'm trying to think of a, if there's like a more iconic actor. That's a that's a pretty strong example right there, you know. James Gandolfini will always be Tony Soprano. Um but, um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you, man. I'm feeling pretty exasperated right now. I really feel myself dancing for you guys. I don't know. I feel like I have so many things to talk about and yet I spent the first 10 minutes of this episode yawning at you and, uh, I don't know. It feels a bit color by numbers right now, if I'm being honest. It's probably cause I'm tired. Um, you know, I was thinking about it when I when I played this show yesterday. I remember after I played, and dude, I'm yawning again probably, but <sighs> deal with it. I uh, I was literally, after I played, I was hanging out over by the merch counter. And right after you play, there's always like a rush of people that sort of come over and, and want to say hi to you. But then within 20 minutes, Matt has hit the stage and so everyone runs back over. And then you're sort of by yourself for the majority of the set. And then maybe about, once people start feeling the the show kind of coming to a close, people start sneaking out to beat traffic and you'll catch some of the people buying merch, you know, before the last big push where everyone leaves the theater and, you know, nine times out of 10, when you play a show with Matt Nathanson, there's going to be, you know, a, a, a substantial line at the merch counter. But you spend most of the show just sort of sitting there, um... And I remember just sitting there, and I got some, they had like a food. So basically, the show was at this huge winery, and it was like the, the end of their summer concert series. And I'd never been there before. It was a place called Wenty Vineyards. And it was beautiful. It was like this huge compound out in Livermore, California. And you're driving on the 580 away from the Bay Area. And uh, yeah, you just end up down these sort of back country kind of... I don't know, Napa County-like roads. It's a little drier, but you just hit all these vineyards all of a sudden. And uh, so you pull into the Wenty Vineyard, and it's just this huge compound. And uh, they have a big concert area, and apparently the capacity is about 1,300. And, 
Yeah, great spread. But they had like food trucks and all that sort of stuff. And apparently they had like bands playing in other parts of the other parts of the uh of the event like before the the big show started. Um so anyway, it was a big it was a big to-do, I guess. And um but I remember just sitting at the merch counter and just yawning like I'm doing at you now. And I do feel another one coming. <sighs> Dude, something's got to be done about this. It's just like not appropriate, you know what I'm saying? Like, if I was, like, hired by anybody as a broadcaster, they would have fired me. Um, they would have, like, put ammonia under my nose or something. Something to wake me up. Um, so, yeah, I don't know why I'm crashing. But, um, hey, we're just chilling, man. We're friends, right? We don't have to be anything for each other. We can just be who we are. You know what I'm saying? Hey, man, you come as you are. Dude, and by the way... Who knows what the hell you guys are doing right now? I bet most of you are listening to this naked. Are you at home naked right now? What are you doing? Damn, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm really out of steam. I'm literally sitting here thinking... Dude, this is the first time since I've started recording where I want to stop. Where I'm literally sitting here thinking... You know what? Fuck it, man. This is going shitty. Just stop. Come back when you're feeling better. But I don't know, man. When I did, uh, was it the mother's makeup thing? I think that came out of me being frustrated. So there's a part of me that's like, dude, who knows why this wall is hitting you, but sit with it, man. See where it takes you. You know, sometimes important things come out of sort of letting go of what you wanted to say, what you thought you needed to say, and just tuning back to the present, getting in touch with how I'm feeling right now, which is gassed. I'm pooped. I'm pooped. Have you ever heard people say that? What's so disgusting. If they're tired, they just say, oh, I'm pooped. I'm saying, I'm pooped. I don't know if that was clear. You know why I'm saying it like that? Because actually, I have a half-sister who's from uh, Minnesota. And um, I think when I... I didn't see her a whole bunch growing up, but I do remember I was living in Cincinnati. And I think we were about... I don't know. I think we were maybe like six or seven. I, it, we were younger than 10 for sure. And I was old enough to have a clear memory of this. But we, you know, when we were growing up, we had the original Nintendo system with like Duck Hunt and Mario Brothers and all that sort of, all that sort of stuff. But I remember our half-sister came over, and I think it was the first time we ever met her. And uh, I'm gonna, I mean, her her voice wasn't this cartoonish. It's just sort of fun for me to do it this way. But she was like, you know, I know how to beat Super Mario Brothers. And we were like, really? She was like, yeah. I'm fucking, I'm not doing the accent. But she's like, yeah, I can beat it in one sitting. And you're like, what do you, she's like, oh, I can just play through the whole game and just beat it. And we were like, what? So she was doing it for us. And the thing that I remember most, well, she did, by the way, which was incredible to me as a kid. I was like, holy crap. But what was incredible is every time she would like mess up or die or something or like, you know, miss something she was going for, she would go, oh, poop stains. Oh, poop stains. <laughs> Dude, that always stuck with me. Dude, it's totally unfair the things that people do that stick in your memory. Oh my God. So poop stains. So from, I think I told my girlfriend about that or something, but so sometimes I'll do something and I'll just go, oh, poop stains. <laughs> Dude, the weird thing about that is I know exactly what it means and it's funny. Anyone else hearing it would have no fucking clue. But also the weird part is that person has no idea that you remembered that. Like that means nothing to them. And for you, it means a whole hell of a lot. In fact, sometimes those little things, 
those are those become like the totem for that person like literally all right i'm not gonna say this person's name but when i was growing up when i was in elementary school we had sex ed starting in like fourth or fifth grade um and i assume they still have sex ed in schools i don't know i mean not that people need it because uh the internet but uh when i was growing up and i I don't know maybe i sound stupid putting it that way because i don't know if they still do this in schools but they would start corralling they would separate the boys and the girls for like one period once a week for like eight weeks or six weeks or some shit then they had this curriculum of sex education so they would separate the boys and the girls dude they would have a lot of trouble doing that these days and um they would separate the boys and the girls and they would have the female teachers teach the girls about their sexual development and they would have some of the guy teachers um teaching the young boys about their sexual development and you know they're talking about sex they're talking about puberty they're talking about reproduction all that sort of stuff and i remember as they're talking about i remember as they're talking about how a baby's born i remember there's like uh, you know i don't know if it was some video or whatever but um and, you know, they, they try to do as much as they can to encourage kids to feel comfortable to ask questions. And so after a while, you know, people start asking these sort of funny questions. But as um, the teacher was like, yeah, and then the baby's born and it comes out of the vagina. And this kid just goes, wait, you mean they don't come out of the butt? <laughs> and unfortunately for that young gentleman, that's exa- that's like who he is to me. And uh, I remember when I was living out in Berkeley for a while... I was just sort of languishing at a bar that I worked at for like four years, not really doing much of anything with my life. And I bumped into this kid and I hadn't seen him in like a decade, dude, actually probably like 15 years or something like that. And he was out here in San Francisco going to like dental school. And yeah, I mean, there's no way around it. Dude. I was kind of embarrassed for him to see me just like working at a bar or whatever. And to hear like, oh yeah, he's going to dental school. And I was like, of course, um, He's going to be a dentist and super successful. And I remember I, I texted my brother. I was like, oh, you'll never guess who I ran into. I ran into so-and-so. And he was like, oh, do babies still come out of the butt for that dude? <laughs> I was so tickled pink that not only did my brother remember that also, but that that was as, what's the word I'm looking for? That was as easily recalled. You know what I mean? That that was at the, that was at the, that was the first that thing was the first in line of what you would remember about this individual. So it's both fucking hilarious and also super, super sad for him. Because this guy's smart. There's nothing wrong with the guy. I got nothing against him personally. He wasn't a bad person. The guy's great. The dude's clearly really intelligent. He's probably a successful dentist by now. But unfucking fortunately for him, he will always be the dude or the young kid for whom babies formally came out the butt, who thought babies came out the butt, he will always be the kid for whom babies come out the butt. Ah, oh, poor guy. It makes you wonder, though. It's like, dude, what stuff do you, I have in my past that people remember of me that, um, that you just don't fucking remember? Dude, it's so crazy. Dude, another dude who keeps coming up on this podcast is Aaron Marsh, the comedian in Los Angeles. And I remember he told me one last time I saw him in LA and he was telling me, uh, I mean, he was doing music when we first met. Now he's doing comedy. And I think he, uh, I know he, I don't want to, I don't want to um, misremember this, but he said something like, oh, you should, I, I don't know. He said something like I, I observed in him that he should do comedy. Or I asked him something like, well, what, like, what kind of music do you want to do? And, or something like that. And he was like, oh, I want to, I want to be funny. Or something, and I and, and I think he said that I recognized something about comedy in him, but maybe before he saw it in himself. I don't fucking remember. 
the truth is it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what the fuck I said. But the point is, is that he had this um, very strong recollection of something that I had absolutely no fucking memory of. And I actually had a friend, um, a dude I haven't seen out here forever, musician in the Bay Area named Brian Bergeron, who uh, we were at a housewarming party for a mutual friend of ours, another great musician named Jefferson Berge, who you should check out. Um, Very funny, very lewd and crude. So uh, one, if you don't like cussing, you shouldn't be listening to this fucking podcast, but you you shouldn't listen to Jefferson Berge. But if you're sensitive, but if you're not so sensitive, you should check him out. I recorded some music for him. He recorded a, a couple EPs over here, at least. I don't remember all the stuff he and I recorded together, but we recorded. I recorded a fair amount with him. Um, but what am I saying? Oh yeah, Brian Bergeron had this thing. I like. I think on another episode I was talking about. You know, there's something about performers where, you know, we think creative success is going to fill this void in us. And, and apparently, like years ago, I had fucking like pontificated at Brian Bergeron about the same idea, and it seemed to mean something to him. And I remember bumping into him at this housewarming party and and him bringing that up. And saying, oh, yeah, I remember you saying that. That always sort of stuck with me. And I was like, oh, shit. Your boy is dropping knowledge on people, dude. And I don't even fucking know it. Dude, I'm like fucking Johnny Appleseed with this wisdom. I just ring, ring, ring. Just fucking sharing the good news, dude. Dude, that noise. Ring. Dude, do you remember when you were growing up? Did you have this thing where you had like children's books on tape? And it was like, when you hear the chime, you can turn the page. Ring. So it'd be like Peter Pan or something, and it would be like, and then Peter Pan and the children, they flew the first star on the right and straight on till morning. Ring! The next day, or whatever the fuck. Dude, it'd be like uh, Winnie the Pooh or some shit like that. But like every time it was time to turn the page, you would just hear, ring! Dude, Teddy Ruxpin. Does that mean shit to anybody? Dude, I think we had this thing. It was called Teddy Ruxpin. It was like this toy teddy bear that had like a cassette player in its back. And I think you just put in like Teddy Ruxpin fucking uh, audiobooks or some shit like that. I don't know. You, you would play these tapes and shit, dude. I don't know. I should really know what I'm talking about before I start talking about it. <sighs> Man. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you folks. Yeah, today feels pretty, um, yeah, pretty uninspired. Yeah, maybe I'm just gassed. Maybe I'm just pooped, like I said. It is funny how things happen, though. I mean, yesterday, you know what it probably is? It's probably I'm overstimulated from yesterday. You know, it's so weird, like, you know, I did the I did the shows with Matt in, like, March, and then, like, so how long has it been? I'm so stupid. So March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October. So, like, six months, seven months since I've had that sort of experience where you're playing for such a large large crowd. And then afterwards, you're meeting so many people. You know, it's really important for me that I hang out by the merch counter. One, because I meet people, but that's how I'm going to sell merch. You know, I, I never have someone who's uh, able to sell for me um, the way the venue will usually sell for, for Matt. Or Matt will have a merch guy on the road, but, you know, the venue will, will provide someone to sell Matt's merch. But I'm out there the whole time, so I'm meeting a bunch of people. And, uh, yeah, it's like you play, and then you're just meeting a bunch of people. And then it's you, like, get... You like get in the car. It, I guess there's this weird thing. So it's like I'm driving out there, and I don't know where. I, like I have no idea what to expect. I have some mental picture in my mind of what it's going to be, and I always have this moment when I'm like loading the car. You know, where I have my guitars, I'm putting them in. I grab the merch bins. I sort of put them in the truck, and I sort of look at my apartment. And I, I mean, I never do it this obviously, but I do always have this thought where I'm like, 
you know, I'll like look at the clock. So yesterday was an early show and I think I left at like 1130. Um, and I was like, it's 1130 now at some point later tonight, I will return to this exact same space with the experience of what I'm about to do behind me. Um, like I thought this when I was, I was, I, you know, I said I auditioned for the voice a couple years ago. Um, maybe it was a year ago. Maybe it was two years ago. I don't fucking know. But I had the same thing when I was down there. I was staying in like an Airbnb for a couple of days while that was going on. And I remember leaving the Airbnb. I literally, it was like a 10 minute walk to the, to the soundstage from this Airbnb I was staying at. And so I had my guitar on my back and I was like, you know, I'm leaving the space and I, in about, you know, who knows, maybe three hours, I'm going to return to this exact same room with the experience of what I'm about to do behind me. You know, like, like, cause before you had this anticipation, you're like nervous, you know? And, um, and you're thinking, I can't wait till it's over so I can relax. It's like people ask you all the time, like, Hey, like, well, first of all, when people tell me they're like, dude, when I'm on stage, that's when I'm alive. That's when I feel in touch with my true self. I go, are you fucking crazy? I've never had that experience. I've had great moments on stage. But otherwise, it's sort of like sensory overload. Do you know? I mean, I'm up there. I'm doing my thing. Um, and you always feel like you're present. But then you step off stage and you really don't remember most of it. Um, there's only a couple moments per set, I think, where you feel totally dialed in or you feel actually, maybe it's more like control where you feel like you're in control of what's taking place. I mean, for me yesterday, it was, I was, you know, I do this cover of Mr. Tambourine Man by Bob Dylan. And for some reason, I just, it's just a song I think I happen to do pretty well, um, especially solo. Uh, it's sort of a dramatic song for me. And, um, I also think there's a confidence that comes from playing other people's material and, you know, there are songs I've played of mine so many times that I know, you know, that I'm, I just know them and I, and I play them well. And it is nice when I hear them recorded, when I like see some video of the performance or, or whatever, I go, oh man, that sounds so much better than what it felt like. So that's always a relief. But in terms of the actual living experience of where I feel like, oh, this is going well, Mr. Tambourine Man is pretty consistently fun for me to play. And I think part of it is just that disconnect of not being invested in the song itself. I, I just sort of, you just sort of, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man is a, is a, um, is a, um, uh, legendary song. It's a, it's a very famous song. It's a, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. There's some word I'm, I'm reaching for that I can't think of, but you know, I just think you just trust the material more. Um, it does some of the work for you. It's reputation does some of the work for you of selling it. And there's also that familiarity thing. You know, the reason I also enjoy playing it is, you know, 25 minutes is not a long set, but still you play six of your own songs back to back for people who've never heard you before. There's just not a lot to latch onto. You know, people can hear one or two songs and say, oh, I like this guy's voice or this guy's good. But once they've, that's pretty much sunk in, you know, they're cool. <laughs> you know, you could not play anymore and they would be, they would be satiated. So I think, uh, you know, putting a, a decent cover in the middle of your set can actually be a good way to, to refresh people. It's something, it's a way for them to, to, to re-endear them to yourself. You know, you jump out of the box when you start playing and if you're good, they like you. But after two or three songs, they've kind of acclimated to that. Play a cover that you do well, it can actually re-endear people to yourself. And by that time, you can just play your closer, which should kill anyway, and then you get off the stage and they want to hear more of you. Um, some free advice for you. But, um... Yeah, but where was it going with this? Oh, when I was on stage playing it especially, 
especially yesterday when I was playing Mr. Tambourine Man. I was really into it, man. I was really in control. I could just tell that it was... You know, there's only a few times when you're on stage and you feel like, oh, I couldn't fuck this up if I tried. You know, the voice is just coming out and it's perfect and it's kind of fun. You're kind of playing with it in a way. Um, I think a lot of times, when, at least when I'm on stage, I, I spend so much time trying to do it right, you know, that I can't kind of be in the moment. And And I don't mean like I'm up there struggling or anything. I just mean... You know, I'm just, some of my brain is thinking about what section of the song is coming next. Um, or you're dealing with, like, dude, I don't know what the fuck it is, but I, I have encountered this more recently in the last, like, few months than I have anywhere else. But, um, you know, Matt and his band, they'll have their own sound guy, this dude, Otto. Really nice guy. Um, and it's, it's really just a financial thing, but usually when, when, I, when I've toured with him and, and even yesterday, what the, they'll have like a house engineer for the opening act. And I don't know what it is, but um, I, dude, I get so much feedback when I play. Like, do you, do you know what I mean by feedback? It's that sound that happens, you know, like when someone's talking in the mic, it can be that squeal or that all of a sudden the bass, some frequency in the instrument is just sort of overloading. It's, just, it's hard to describe, but you, you know feedback when you hear it. And it's always on important chords, too. It's like the four or the five chord. I pedal on these a lot. And for some reason, these important chords, like, feedback. And it's normally not a problem. Like, as I'm looking at my thing that I'm recording into now, I I see the EQ filter um, that I have. And and I've gone back and listened to my voice and filtered out, you know, sort of the, quote, problem frequencies. Um, it's It's a relatively simple thing, if you know what you're doing, to notch out. But I play entire sets now where... You know, I keep playing the same chords and they're feeding back over and over again. And the sound person just like is not touching the dials. And I'm like, okay, I mean, there's really nothing I can do about it at this point. I have to play the chords. Um, so yeah, I'm just sort of combating, you know, oh, here's this important chord coming up that I got to sort of, I don't know, you can make minor adjustments where you're ha- with your hands. So you kind of mute the strings a little bit so they're not vibrating so crazy. Um Anyway, I think I was just trying to say, when you're on stage, you, you know, there's always things that you're battling sometimes. It could be a talking crowd. Um, it could be feedback problems that the sound person is inexplicably not taking care of. Um, like, literally, when I was in Seattle last, I was playing at this place. Was that Seattle? Connor Byrne? I think that is Seattle. I'm feeding back the entire time for, like, almost every song I'm playing. And the fucking sound dude's just, like, staring at his phone. And I'm like, dude, fight the stereotype. You know, there's this stereotype that goes around of the embittered sound guy who doesn't give a fuck. Dude, that's exactly who this person was. And I don't mean to be a dick. I, I would love to go back and play Connor Byrne. <laughs> but, um, yeah, dude, I encounter it all the time. Oh, and when I did sound at Wenty, I don't think the dudes were dicks. I don't know. It was, you know, it's just, you know, they had a long sound check with the band. And I'm the opener. It's just, I'm not as important. So I go up and do a quick line check. They don't really have time to really do a proper sound check. And it just is the case, like, you know, things happen on the fly. You just deal with things as they happen. But uh, sometimes you're fighting things on stage, I think is all I'm trying to say. But every once in a while, you know, the planets align and um, and you kill it and you feel like you're in control. And that happened yesterday when I was playing Mr. Tambourine Man. And you feel it in the crowd. You know, like, oh, dude, as soon as I end this, they're going to, you know, I'm going to get that kind of, you know, it's, you know, I guess the good thing about music, it's not like comedy, which is if you're not doing well, people just don't laugh. But uh, generally, it doesn't matter how badly you do. When you, when you finish a song, you get some applause. Um, but you can feel the difference between polite applause 
uh, compulsory applause, and then when people are really really moved to applaud you. And so that's the times where it feels fulfilling. And uh, so yeah, I, that, that my rendition of Mr. Tambourine Man was warmly received. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I don't know where I don't know why I was saying all this stuff except. Um, you know, afterwards you meet a t- meet a ton of people, and it's just like sensory overload. And um, I don't know if I finished this point, but I was talking about you know you leave the space, you're about to have this whole experience, and then you return to it. And uh, I remember after packing up my truck and like driving back on the same roads that you drive in on, and now the sun has set. Oh, I think this is what I was trying to say. <laughs> people all the time who are like, "Oh, when I'm on stage, I feel free." I'm like, I don't fucking experience that. Um, what is satisfying for me is having had done the show, you know, cause beforehand you're kind of nervous, you know, and I, I never get real stage fright anymore. And I can tell you, I mean, yesterday when I did the Wendy show, like about, you know, 20 minutes, I was hanging out by the merch counter, really nice merch girl. I forget her name. Um, really, really sweet. And, um, about 20 minutes before I was about to go on, you know, I had the, the green room was like, and, and I don't know, I had to go get my guitar and then I had to like go to the stage and they were in two separate places. But I was like, you know, when it's 10 minutes to showtime, I'm going to go get my guitar and then I'll just hang out on the side of the stage so that I'm ready to go. And about 20 minutes beforehand, I started getting kind of nervous and not like terrified. It's just, you get some butterflies in your stomach. And I, uh, I was like, okay, it's time for me to take off. And so I go up to the, go up to the room, the green room, Matt and his bands up there, some other people. I grab my, grab my guitar, you know, tune it up and I'm starting to feel it. You know, I get some butterflies and I'm like, okay, here we go. And, uh, so I just fucking head out there. I have to cross the lawn, you know, walk uh, alongside the crowd and dude, it was like 1300 people there. And I like, uh, snake my way to the side of the stage and I'm sort of standing there and this girl's doing some sort of, the MC is doing, I think she's like a daughter of the people who own the winery or whatever, but she's doing some sort of announcement. And so I'm standing there and I'm like, yeah, and I'm feeling it. And I'm like, dude, it's like, I'm kind of anxious, you know? And it's like, I got my water and I'm pacing and I'm kind of like, you know, I'm just like, yeah, dude, I feel it. I mean, I mean, I can even feel it right now as I'm talking about it. It's just, you know, you get those butterflies and, um, you know, and then it's like, it's showtime. Here we go. And it's like, I walk out there and the minute I plug in and I start playing a couple songs, I mean, it starts to fade away. You start to calm down. But it's that anticipation, that expectation, you know, it's just, and, f- and part, it's fear, you know, it's not like a flight, it, it, dude, it's, it is the, I was going to say it's not flight, but it's the beginning of that fight or flight. And it's like, are you going to fight or are you going to flight? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when it's showtime, dude, it's time to fight. And actually something came up earlier this week that I, I really tried to, to remember. I don't know if I did a great job of remembering when I was actually on stage, but I was certainly thinking about it throughout that day. And I work with a coworker uh, who really wants to do, um, I, I mean, I don't want to say too much to identify them, but they want to do some sort of performance art. You know, it's something that they really wanted to do. It's really important to them, but they really struggle with um, stage fright. And it's a perfectly natural thing. I remember when I first started playing music again, I remember I would play open mics and it would be like the afternoon, like the open mic was at like nine o'clock that night. It would be three in the afternoon. I would be at work and I would be terrified. I used to go to these open mics and sign up and they would call my name and I wouldn't get on stage. You know, and it took me like half a dozen times of going and just bailing before I finally fucking went up there and did it. And when you finally do it, you just force yourself to do it. And I remember 
I, the first time I played in years, I was at this open mic at a place. It's not there anymore. It was called Beck's in Berkeley. And I think I went up and played an old, uh, old song of mine as the plastic art. It's called Crooked Books. I'm pretty sure that's the song I played. And I remember just playing it with my eyes fucking just so tightly closed, just like getting through it, you know? It was like, I didn't give, I mean, I, of course I wanted to do well, but it was like, I had sort of made a bargain with myself beforehand, which is like, dude, fuck it. Who cares if you do well? You're just going to fucking get through it. The, the, the goal for this is fucking just getting through it. You know, it's like riding a roller coaster with your fucking eyes closed. It's like, you don't even give a fuck that you're missing all of it. Like you just want it to be fucking over. You're just enduring. Traverse the experience. That's the only fucking goal that we're setting for ourselves. Um, so I completely sympathize. I mean, you know, getting on stage, especially if you've never done it before, is a very... Dude, by the way, when they fucking pull people... Dude, people fear public speaking more than death. People would rather fucking die than do public speaking. Have you seen this? Like, dude, when you're in school and someone has to give a group presentation, dude, they fucking... It's like they're possessed. They become a completely different person. And it's like, yo, dude, and I thought I had anxiety or I would get nervous. Dude, these people like fall apart. They're up there like, and, and, uh, and you see like their hands shaking. Like some of that you can't help. Like I've literally been on stage sometimes, like even when I did theater and I would feel completely calm and you have to like hold a piece of paper or something on stage and you fucking see it shaking. And you're like, oh dude, I didn't realize how much adrenaline is running through me. Like, you feel calm, but it's just like there's something... Like, when I watch Great British Baking Show, and they got a couple seconds left before they have to finish their fucking... I don't even fucking know what they're making. They're, like, icing their fucking cakes or whatever. Like, they're all shaking. And I'm sure they feel it. You know, that's, like, a legit time crunch. But I I think there is something to... Like, you don't even have to be conscious of it. And you could have that fucking current running through you. Do you know what I'm saying? So, you're shaking and shit. But, um... Oh, so... I was talking to my coworker about this thing and she wants to do it. And, um, and there's an, who gives a fuck? She wants to do burlesque. And, uh, there's a, a local burlesque artist who she really admires. And she had gotten some advice from her, which is like, when you're on stage, that's your house, you know? And it's up to the audience to decide whether or not they're up for what you're doing. But when you're on stage, it's like, you're, it's your house and it's your time and it's your space to do what you want to do. And they can, the audience can either come or not. You know what I'm saying? Like, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about with this podcast or with creativity in general. There's sometimes where I'm completely fucking convinced where it's all about considering your audience, you know? And I think this really comes from writing a lot, but it's, there's this idea of consider your audience. And there's sometimes where I'm like, dude, that is, there's nothing more true than that. You always have to consider your audience. Then there's times where I'm like, fuck that. Create for yourself. Because if you create something for yourself that you genuinely really enjoy, it just is the case that you're not a fucking unique snowflake. There are thousands of people just like you. And if you, if you create something for your own taste that you really fucking enjoy, there's bound to be other people who like it. And it may not be the whole world and it may not be, you know, as big as some other fucking show you like, but dude, you have an audience somewhere. Every pot has a lid. Have you heard that saying? I fucking thought everyone heard that. I said that recently and somebody looked at me like a fucking Rubik's Cube. Like they were like, huh? I was like, you never heard that? Every pot has a lid? You never heard that? <sighs> Dude, are you my lid? Am I a pot and are you my lid? Um, but yeah, that idea of like, this is your fucking house. And I think 
like the way I was describing when I was in the middle of Mr. Tambourine Man, that's when I'm like, this is my fucking house. You know, th- those are the times where I really feel like I'm in control. And, uh, I mean, I know I'm sort of jumping around here, but it's like when, before you go on stage and you feel those nerves, dude, it's not your fucking house. <laughs> like you don't feel like, oh, this is my fucking house. You still feel like you have to earn it. And then you go out there and usually within a couple, I mean, just a couple seconds, really, you're just sort of in it. And I've, dude, I've been really happy. I mean, I, I find it happening quicker and quicker where, you know, I was nervous. And even as I'm plugging in my guitar and I'm looking out at this huge crowd of people, I'm thinking, oh, fuck. <laughs> Like, damn, really? This is happening right now? I'm about to do this? But the minute you start plucking on your guitar and you start playing, you know, you usually have like two measures or something. And by the time I breathe in for that first lyric, I'm pretty fucking good to go. You know what I mean? And usually by the, it it actually happens usually like by the beginning of like the first, like three fourths of the first song, I'm fucking legit. And then usually there's some kind of hiccup at the three quarter mark of the first song where I think you know, I've described it that, that I've described it as th- like that moment where you become self-conscious. I think you start checking in with yourself like, hey, this is going pretty good. And the minute you start thinking that it actually can fucking derail you. So I do find there's sort of like a like a moment of, uh, like in the first song where I have to go like and like refresh and just get get the fuck back in it. And then usually by the second song, it's fucking golden. You know, it shows like any other show. But um. Yeah, I told I told my coworker. I said, you know what? That fucking that's really important. I needed to hear that. I got this show coming up this weekend, and and I I thought about it all week. I thought about it the day of. I forgot about it a little bit on stage, being honest. But I was telling myself, like, dude, this is your house. You know, Matt Matt trusts you. He he fucking gave you his space for twenty five minutes to play for his audience. You know, just bring the gift, man. Just do your thing. Bring the gift. Show these people what you show, show them what you got. And look, it's going to be fine. You're going to perform well. And the people who, you know, were meant to hear you and sort of let you in are going to do it. And, you know, it's not going to be everybody, but, you know, I don't know what it is. But every time I do a show like this, I always feel like I've never performed before. And I forget, like, dude, you've done this a lot, actually. And it's always weird, too. Like, I'll walk off stage and I think, oh, that went kind of like, okay. And then, like, I, you know, people start tagging you and stuff on social media because people are taking photo, people are taking videos. People start tagging you. And so I always check that shit out because, like, I want to hear how it sounded. And I'm usually pretty happy. I go, damn, you know, I did quite a bit better than it felt. You know, I think part of that is sound. I think when you're playing in a big sound system, I think it's, you know, it, it it can be generous. You know, I think a lot of people... I don't know. I think there's a vulnerable component to it. There's not a lot of places to hide, but dude, I actually think a lot of volume and reverb and good EQ when it happens and your guitar doesn't feedback, like it actually does a lot for you. You know, it kind of pillows the, the sort of dry raw sound. Um, like I think if people heard the dry signal, the recorded dry signal from most vocal mics live, it'd be pretty fucking atrocious. But yeah, man, you put some reverb on that, some good EQ and amplify it. Sounds pretty decent. <clears throat> excuse me um but yeah what's to be said yeah dude so fuck it. yeah that was my house yesterday but yeah i mean i really owe a lot of, a, a debt of gratitude to matt nathanson for for that experience for <clears throat> you know sharing his audience with me again very generous oh and by the fucking way dude wow 
What I was, dude, I literally just started this podcast talking about, oh, you know what I should tell you about? I should tell you how I met Matt Nathanson. And I fucking didn't even get to it. Um, but maybe I should. Yeah, Matt Nathanson's like a really nice guy. And, uh, you know, everyone I've met out here in the Bay Area, like playing music, like everyone's nice. But Matt is one of the few people who I've met and I felt like, oh, dude, I'm like you. Like, I feel like we're cut from the same cloth. And I don't want to speculate. I mean, I know a little bit about him. He's a, he's a very open person, and I've heard podcasts and interviews with him. I suspect he and I had somewhat of the same upbringing, you know? I feel like whatever... I feel like there was a lot of the same ingredients in our emotional kitchen growing up. And so, there's a part of me that feels like... If he and I ever sat down and really <laughs> started hashing it out, we'd connect on more than just a musical level. But um, but he's just a super friendly dude. And I think my favorite thing about him is, like, his music is great. And his audience loves his music. But when you play for his audience, for his fans, dude, they, they love him as much as they love the music. And I genuinely believe that it, Matt, if Matt Nathanson didn't do music, he could be a stand-up comedian. Because when you go on stage, and I feel bad about this, but I do this too, like you have certain, you know, they, originally they happen organically, but then they, they sort of work, so you reuse them. But like you'll have jokes about songs, you'll have little things you say before this song or that song, and I've recycled those things. And so there's always a couple of those, you know, but for the most part, dude, Matt Nathanson will just like talk in between songs, and it's always fucking funny, and it's always like, he's just fucking coming up with it on the spot, and it's, it's super endearing. I mean, if you've never seen Matt Nathanson live, if you're even somewhat endeared to his music, just go see him. I really think he's going to win you over with just with his persona. And uh, I mean, he's such a seasoned performer. You just know the music is going to be great. But uh, it's really him, his personality, his winning personality that wins people over um, to him. And um, I think that's important because I think how he and I got connected, it's, it's, it's totally singular to him and his personality and what a good person he is because... I just think other people just wouldn't have responded to this. But I think I heard this rap lyric one day. This Dude, this is like in like 2000, 2014 or 15 or some shit like this. This was like six, five, six years ago or something. And I just tweeted out this thing. And it was like, fuck your two cents if it ain't going toward the bill. And I don't know how the fuck he saw it. But he, I, I just saw, got this notification like Matt Nathanson liked your tweet. And then it was like Matt Nathanson started following you on Twitter. And I was like, what the fuck? How did Matt fucking Nathanson find my fucking tweet? And dude, oh, you know what it is? Dude, fuck. No, sorry. It is it is true that I think that was that was the inciting moment for me reaching out to him, which I eventually did. But I, I really have to give credit where credit is due. The real reason I know Matt Nathanson knows me is there is an engineer at a very cool venue in San Francisco called Bottom of the Hill. His name is Paul Thomas, and he's the head engineer, head sound engineer. I don't know what the fuck you call him. He's the main fucking sound dude at Bottom of the Hill. Paul is one of the nicest fucking guys I've ever met in my life. He's one of the most endearing dudes I've ever met in my life. And ever since I stepped foot into Bottom of the Hill, that dude has treated me fucking phenomenally well. He's always mixed phenomenally well, and he's just a... He's just, the fucking opposite of what I was describing in Seattle with the I'm fucking feeding back and the dude staring at his phone. Paul is the opposite of that. This motherfucker washes all the fucking screens on the microphones. He fucking puts that shit through the dishwasher. That dude has his shit locked down. That dude is a fucking professional. And he's been fucking doing Sound in the Bay Area forever. And I think when Matt Nathanson first started touring, I think he did a couple tours with him. 
But Paul is also super evangelical about musicians that he likes. And when he and I connected years ago, he just did this thing at some point on Twitter where he was like sharing songs of some of his favorite artists in the Bay Area. And he happened to share one of mine. It was an old song of mine as the plastic arts called Howdy East Orange. And Matt Nathanson, who fucking is a voracious consumer of music, of course, he, you know, he saw it in his own feed or whatever and clicked on it and liked it and started following me. And I think I was just like, cool. Like what I fucking hate is other people who like screenshot shit like that and share it. Like, dude, what the fuck? You're like shooting yourself in the foot. Like, it's like that. I mean, that's great. I hope you feel great about it, but don't fucking share that with other people. How do you think if that person ever saw you sharing that, how do you think they would feel? It's fucking crazy. But anyway, so it was like, cool. I, en- I enjoyed that. It made me feel good for five seconds, but then I went on with my life. And then I think when I, I tweeted this thing, it was like, fuck your two cents if it ain't going toward the bill. He liked it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to fucking reach out to this dude. And I just sent him a message and I said, hey man, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know what the fuck I said. I'm sure it was something like, hey man, um, you know, uh, you know, I, like, I, I, like I know we live in the same area. I'm sure I could learn a lot from you. We should get some coffee sometime. And, uh, dude, he was fucking up for it. And so I fucking met him in San Francisco. It was super fucking cool. We had coffee. We talked for like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And I just stayed in touch with him. And I kept like sending him shit, like not all the time, but just shit that as I finished it, that I thought, you know, I want him to see it. I would send it to him. You know, I tried to maintain that relationship with him. And every once in a while, something would happen. He'd announce some show or he would announce some tour and uh, I would sort of reach out to him and ask if maybe there was an opportunity for me. And uh, usually the answer was no. Um, I mean, I remember reaching out to him. I had just done this tour, this like, you know, one of my own tours up and down the West Coast. And it was a fucking nightmare. And uh, it's, it, I mean, everyone has stories like this. But, you know, it was like I played a, you know, I drove eight hours to play for fucking nobody. Had a shitty show. Ended up staying in an armpit of a motel room. It was a fucking nightmare. And I remember being in San Luis Obispo, just fucking defeated. Just like, dude, fuck this. This is awful. And I remember that day, Matt Nathanson announced his acoustic tour. Um, not the one that I went on, but like the one before that. And I remember reaching out to him. I was like, hey, man, is there, you know, are you looking for support? Like, if so, like, please consider me. And there wasn't a chance for that. Uh, it just didn't work out that time. But eventually, you know, um, I, the, the last acoustic tour he did, uh, I just reached out to him again and I was like, Hey man, is there a chance, you know, you need some support? And he was like, yeah, dude. Yeah, possibly. He got his buddy blue to fucking do like one half. And then for the West coast, he was like, yeah, dude, join us for the West coast. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, I don't know what to say about it, except Matt's always, that's just like a super fucking cool thing to do. You know? Um, it can't happen all the time. You know, having support is a multidimensional decision and it's not always up to the artist. But, um, yeah. Anyway, I don't fucking know, dude. I thought there was going to be some big take, take away for people listening to this to take into their own fucking careers. But maybe if there's a lesson, which is be personable, don't be too grabby and, uh, just maintain a relationship. And, uh, if I'm being honest, I was fucking worried for a long time. I was just bothering him, <laughs> you know, every time I fucking would text him or send him an email or send him some shit that I finished. I, you know, I really thought that he was like, dude, I wish this kid would stop fucking bothering me. But, uh, turns out I wasn't. And, uh, or if I did, it wasn't a deal breaker. <laughs> and, uh, I really feel blessed, uh, not just for the opportunity to do the tour, but, um, to do, to do the, our recent gig together. And, um, yeah, you know, if there's uh, more opportunities in the future, I would fucking love to do it. 
but uh, regardless, it's uh, I'm blessed for those experiences anyway, and uh, um, I learned a lot. You know, it's it's really when, when you do this creative thing. Part of it's talent, part of it is perseverance, but it really takes someone giving you an opportunity. I mean, it really is luck. And um, it's just, you know, opportunity. It's the planets aligning. You know, maybe the first time I reach out to Matt, if it was up to him, if the circumstances were different, maybe I would have done the tour two years ago. But it didn't fucking work out. And that's the case for everything that you encounter. I mean, there's this idea that like, oh, well, you know, you just get to, like, like, people think you just succeed, like, oh, things are just really hitting for you and they're just going well. And maybe sometimes that happens. But for the most part, and this is just my personal experience, but I think it's definitely, I just, I think it's fucking true, which is whatever, in a creative pursuit, in a creative life, and in, in your creative output, what people experience as your success is really just your continued operation in the face of all the failure they don't fucking see. You know what I'm saying? Like, you are failing all the fucking time. 99 out of 100 things you go out for never fucking happen. And then one day the fucking clouds part and you get a cool opportunity. And it's just enough to keep you going. But it's also like you need those opportunities. You know, it, you start off playing your open mics and then you need someone to give you your first gig. You know, you need people giving you an opportunity that you don't qualify for, but it's just a fucking gift. Bottom of the hill gave that to me by giving me these fucking support slots that, why? I don't know. I came in one time. I was a fucking pro. I did my job. I didn't cause him a fucking hassle. And they were like, okay, let's fucking throw this kid a bone. And uh, so I got great opportunities to open up for like John Bellion, open up for uh, tennis, uh, Matt Pond, you know, just... And then like Matt Nathanson, it's like, you know, you know, you play the open mics, you play the local venues, you want to play the bigger stages. And every time you kind of hit a ceiling where you're like, dude, I don't see how the next move's going to fucking come. But if I'm going to grow as a performer, as an artist, I need someone to give me that fucking chance. And uh, Matt went through it. And uh, I'm sure he knows what it's like, dude, that you just need someone to say yes. And next thing you know, you're playing rooms fucking way bigger than you could ever get yourself into. But you grow as a performer. You know, you learn how to play those rooms and it builds your confidence and it really puts wind in your sails creatively. And, um, so yeah, I've, I've had my head down doing this podcast thing. And, uh, I know we talked about it in the last episode that I kind of feel like that's, that is where my heart is at, honestly. And, uh, I don't think one show changes it. Um, one great show. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'm still feeling grateful and, uh, yeah, I'm a little gassed and yeah, we uh, danced around here and, uh, this wasn't a, a very straight line of an episode, but what the fuck, you know what I'm saying? We're figuring it out. And, uh, yeah, dude, we're just not going to give up. We're going to keep pushing through and sometimes we're going to wander, but dude, you know, I don't give a fuck. Um, like I said, I would respect myself less if I fucking recorded the failure and didn't put it out, man. And we're putting it all out there. We're pushing through babies. We're going to learn how to do it. And, uh, thanks for sticking along. Thanks for joining me on the journey. And, uh, if you like what you hear and you haven't subscribed yet, do it. You can subscribe on Apple Podcast. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. You can find all my socials at this is M X O X O. And uh, dude, I, I, I'd be eager to answer your questions again. If you, but you guys got to do better than you've done in the past. So if you have any questions, hit me up on Instagram Messenger, hit me up on Twitter, hit me up on Facebook, and uh, maybe we'll do that again soon. Otherwise, share the podcast. Find one person in your one of your peeps and turn them on to the show. Otherwise. 
Whew, we done, babies. I can take a nap. And uh, thanks for listening. Look forward to doing it again soon. Ciao for now.